How y'all doing today? Awesome. If you are joining us here in our sanctuary for the first time, or if you're joining us online for the first time, we want to say welcome to all of you. We're so glad you're here to worship with us today. For those of you that may not know, I am Pastor Nathan, and this morning we're going to be in 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, and what we're going to be doing is revisiting the subject of love. Now, this is the third time in this letter so far that John is addressing the subject of love, and it's not because he's ran out of things to talk about, right? Um, The reason we're revisiting this is because the Holy Spirit who inspired John's letter, wants to present the subject again to us from a deeper point of view. If you remember back in 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 through 11, it was the first time the topic of love came up in the letter here, and it was basically dealing with godly love for others being present in our lives is given as proof that we have fellowship with God. That concept of being close with God, being united with God, and it really was offering that that godly love being present in our lives is the proof that the condition of our relationship with God is good. Then the second time it came up is in 1 John chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. There it was the idea of godly love for others being present in our lives was given as evidence of proof, or the proof of our sonship, that we're God's children that we've been adopted into his family, that we've been transformed and given a new nature and made a part of the family of God. And really, that was the proof that the status of our relationship with God is good. So we had both the proof that our condition, the condition of our relationship, and the status of our relationship being good as evidenced through us demonstrating godly love for one another here in the church specifically, but then out to the world as well. So the first time love came up in this letter, it was a matter of light or darkness, walking with God, being in fellowship with God. The second time the matter of love came up, it was a matter of life or death. You're either God's kid or you're the devil's kid, is how John put it. So pretty straightforward. Well, this morning here in John chapter four, uh, verses one through 16 here, um, the Holy Spirit is really gonna take us down. Did I say one through 16? It's seven through 16, sorry about that. Uh, The Holy Spirit is gonna take us down to the very bedrock of the issue of love. And he's really gonna deal with the issue here of teaching us why love is such an important integral part of a genuine Christian life. Now it is indeed a test of the fact of uh, whether or not we truly have fellowship with God, whether or not we are truly in the family of God, and John's gonna say that it's a test of that fact because God is love. God is love. You know, love is, is part of the very nature of God. It's a part of the very being of God. Love is a part of the very essence of who God is. Love is who God is. And so if we're united to God through our faith in Jesus Christ, if we've been born again and come to him, then John has taught us that we share his nature as his children. And if we share his nature, and his nature is love, then love is indeed a test of whether we have true, genuine spiritual life in Jesus Christ. And if we we have genuine spiritual life, It demonstrates that love that God wants to have with the rest of the world. And it's important that we demonstrate that because it's his nature and the effect it has. So if you think about the concept like using a compass. If you ever used a compass before, I used one years ago when I was in Boy Scouts. A compass is used because it shows direction. For you younger folks, it's that little thing that's in your car in the mirror That says N and S and E and W, right? That's your compass, that's your directional indicator. Now, the reason we use compasses is because they point the direction and they always point north. And some might go, well, why does a compass always point north? Because a compass is designed to respond to the magnetic nature of Earth. It responds to the magnetic nature of Earth. And it's the same concept with Christian love. You know, God's nature is love. So the person who has his nature, the person who is born again will respond to God's nature. Our lives will point the right direction. And as a compass naturally points north, the believer's life will naturally practice godly love. Specifically towards one another in the body of Christ, but especially out to the world who doesn't know what love is. 
a world who has no idea what real, true, godly love is all about. And that happens because the nature of the one who has been born of God has his nature, which is love. So the section we're looking at this morning, we're gonna be encouraged to love one another again. We're gonna be encouraged to love one another, not forcefully, not, not making it happen, but naturally as a part of who we are in Christ. And he's gonna teach us this and encourage us this by teaching us three foundational facts about who God is. Who God is is what results in who we should be, and that's what we're gonna be looking at this morning. But before we get into that, we're gonna spend some time in worship, and so I encourage all of you guys to express your love to God. Praise his name. We sing songs to his name. It's not just to sing songs. We wanna express to God how much we love him because he first loved us, amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, God. We love you so much, but Lord, it's only because you first loved us. You demonstrated your love for us, God, on the cross by dying for our sins, taking the punishment for our wrongdoing upon yourself. God, you suffered the death penalty in our place so that we could be forgiven, so that we can be pardoned, so that the guilt of our sin can be washed away and that we could have a restored, perfect, unbroken fellowship with you, and then to be vessels, conduits, Lord, to express this supernatural love to a lost and dying world. And Lord, all of that is because love is who you are. You are love. And so God, as your children, we wanna be people that express that love because we share your nature. We wanna be kids that, that reflect the nature of our dad, God, and so we ask today that you would help us to do that, to learn how to do that if we've forgotten, Lord, to be introduced to the topic for the first time, if that's what it is, or to be just encouraged to keep going. God, because we live in a world where the concept of love is upside down, twisted, distorted. Lord, the world doesn't know what true love is. And God, we as your children have the opportunity to not only take the message of what true love is, but then to demonstrate that through our own lives and how we treat one another and how we react to the world. And so God, teach us, encourage us, bless us. Mold us and shape us, Lord, into your very likeness that we may have an effect on this world for the kingdom of God. Lord, we love you so much and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. As I said, we're gonna be in 1 John chapter four, looking at verses seven through 16, and I'm gonna read for context, and then we'll dive through. John opens up there in verse seven. He says, dear friends, let us love one another, because love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way, God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we remain in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and we testify that the Father has sent his Son as the world's Savior. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in him and he in God. And we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. You get it? How many times does John have to repeat it, right? You know, John opens up this section here in, in teaching us why love is so foundational in a genuine Christian life, uh, why we are called and exhorted over and over and over again to live this life by, by introducing us uh, to three foundational facts about God. And the first foundational fact about God that answers why we are to love one another is simply that truth that he is love. God is love. You know, John uses expressions like this throughout his writings to, to help us understand the nature of God. Um, back in John uh, chapter 4, verse 24, he says, God is spirit. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 4, he said, God is light. And then here in 1 John 4, 8, he says, God is love. 
John likes using these types of phrases. Now, none of these phrases in and of themselves are a complete revelation of God, but they're intended to help us understand aspects about the nature of God and who he is. Back in John 4, when John said God is spirit, he was having a conversation with the woman at the well about where to worship God, right? And if you remember in that story, she's like been rejected by society and people have been treating her wrong, and so she's at this well, and Jesus introduces himself to her, and she's like, look, you Jews say God has to be worshiped in the temple, but we Samaritans say that he's worshiped here on this mountain. Where are we supposed to worship God? And Jesus introduces this concept that God is spirit, saying that God is not limited to time and space the way his creation is. God is not physically bound to a place and thus can be worshiped anywhere by anybody. Yes, we know that God came for a time clothed in flesh. We know him as Jesus Christ, but God in his essence is not limited by the way we are to a physical realm. Then when John introduced the concept that God is light, it was referring to God's holy nature. He's saying God is holy. God is pure, right? In the Bible, we see this concept of light often referring to holiness and purity and the concept of darkness referring to sin and and, and things that are anti or against God, things that are impure. And so when he said God is light, he was telling us that no darkness can exist in God because he is light, meaning that, that God cannot sin because he is holy, he is pure, he is perfect, And as a result of us being born into into his family, we are granted his holy nature to be like him, right? In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15, it says, but as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all of your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy, right? And we can because we've been empowered and enabled to do so by the Holy Spirit, but the phrase that John's introducing us to here in John chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4, that God is love is another huge concept. God is love. What it's telling us is that God is the one who defines what love is. Right? Not the other way around. You can't say love is God. That's not what his concept is here. It's the very concept of love and what it is and what it looks like and how it is expressed and lived is all found in who God is, everything God is, including every thought of his, every motivation, every purpose, every action, all of it is love. And since God is love and God is light, as John told us earlier, his love is holy. His love is pure. His love is perfect, without flaw. It is morally perfect in every possible way. His holiness is expressed in his love, and his love is seen through his holiness. It's all tied together in who he is. And it's really this concept that all that God does expresses all that God is. And we only know what true love is by knowing God. We only know what true love is by knowing him. I mean, if you think about it, even his judgments are given out in love and mercy. Now, what is called love in modern society, in the secular world, doesn't really have any connection, nor does it really bear any resemblance in any way, shape, or form to true, holy, spiritual love that is seen in God. You know, we'll see stuff all over the world today. You know, you'll, you'll hear the phrase, God is love, used by people to justify their incredibly ungodly behavior. You know, don't judge me. I can live however I want. They'll hold up signs and parades and stuff to say God is love. And, and, and that's a radical misunderstanding of what God is love means, who he is. You know, godly Christian love is unique, special kind of love. It's born out of the very essence, the very nature of God, and so therefore Christian love for one another and Christian love into the world is also then to be pure and spiritual and holy because it comes after the nature of our Father. This word love here, it's that word you guys have heard before, agape, right? Agape love. It's defined in different ways at at different times in Bible studies. You refer to it as unconditional love, uh, charitable love, right? This, This word, 
embodies the concept of, of its affection, its care, its concern. It's having esteem for one another. It's to cherish one another. It's to have great loyalty to one another. And God is all of those things in his very essence and nature. It's a holy, unselfish love. It's a holy, others-focused, self-diminishing, sacrificial love. It's a love that is motivated by the best for others, even when it means the worst for you. And incidentally, it's a supernatural, not of this world love. Because being wholly others-focused is contrary to our fallen nature. It's contrary to the nature of this world. And so it's a love that comes from another source that is poured out into our lives. You know, Romans 5, 5 said, God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. And so John says here in 1 John 4, verses 7 and 8, he says, everyone who loves... And this is really talking about after the example and the nature of God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. So that statement right there, we see that that godly Christian love is then a valid test of whether you have genuine Christian faith. It's a test of one, since God is love, If you claim to have a personal relationship with God, then you must by necessity reveal his love in how you live because that's your nature now if you're truly a child of God. You guys see the connection? Cause and effect. But then John says something very serious. If you don't, you don't know him. If you don't express this godly love in your life, if this doesn't flow through you naturally because your nature is now that of the Father, he's saying if that doesn't happen in your life, then it doesn't matter if you claim to know God. It doesn't matter if you claim the title of Christian. It doesn't matter if you carry a Bible. It doesn't matter if you go to church. It doesn't matter. If, if, if this nature of God isn't a part of your nature now, he's saying you don't know him. It's a very serious accusation but it's one we should all take to heart and reflect on, especially in times where we might find ourselves in a critical spirit or a bitter spirit or a hateful spirit, behaving in, the, in these really ungodly ways. You're gonna say, wait a second, you know, do I know God? Because if I did, his nature would flow through me. And as I've said about these, these verses, a lot of what John's writing here, this isn't for us to be able to evaluate other people. These verses aren't something to say, hey, I know someone who doesn't act very loving. You must not be saved. This, it's not about that. This is about self-reflection. This is about looking within yourself and going, do I truly know God? Is God's nature flowing through my life? If you don't have this love in your life, John says, you don't know him. That word know there, that's that gnosko in the Greek, right? That's that word referring to experiential love, not just head knowledge, not just intellectual knowledge, but but I know him, I've experienced him. He's made an effect in my life, and he's going, if you've experienced God, if God has come into your life, and you've come into that personal saving relationship with him, your nature will be different, you will act different, specifically you will love different. You will love in a godly way. It's pretty straightforward. Pretty straightforward, non-negotiable logic here, but the person who does not express this divine kind of love, John is saying, is, is, is never entered into a personal experiential, experiential relationship with God. And therefore, they don't possess the nature that can express this supernatural kind of love. You might have head knowledge, but it hasn't penetrated your heart yet, is kind of the idea that John's getting at here. And this all comes down to this idea, and you see this throughout the New Testament, you see this throughout Scripture, that, that what God is determines what we should be. Or who God is determines who we should be. It's a, it's a theme that we see throughout Scripture all the time. As a matter of fact, in, in just a few verses after what we're looking at today in 1 John four seventeen, John says, because as he is so also are we in this world. Salt 
it's called in one place, light, it's called in one place, right? All these metaphors for, for, for us as we're regenerated and saved, God leaves us in this world. And I say that in the sense of when I was younger in my faith, I used to wonder, God, this place kind of is not great, right? I know because I was a part of it for a long time. But, but then you saved me, God. You died on the cross. I, I put my faith in that. God, you regenerated. You saved me. And, and you leave me here? What's up with that, dude? It's because he wants us to then have an effect on those who don't know him yet. We are left here as a preservative. We are left here to be a vessel for God to work through. And we're going to get to that later in this study. But this first concept here is why we're to love one another it's because it's after the nature of the one who we are begotten of. You can't help but to love in this, this, this supernatural godly love if you have the nature of God within you. If you have been saved, you have been born again, you have been regenerated. A person who is in union with God, union with their creator, will, will be personally affected, will be personally changed by that relationship because he is love. So verse nine, John goes on to write, God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent us his one and only son, sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is the second foundational fact about who God is that answers why we're to love one another. We're to love one another because God is love, and we're also to love one another because of what God did. Because God's very essence, his very nature is love, he communicates that not just in words, but he communicates it in action, in demonstration. And that's really a picture of what real true love is. It's, it's a love that, that isn't just spoken, it's not inactive, but it has action behind it. it. It's demonstrated through action. Now, God demonstrated his love to us, his love to mankind, through a number of different ways throughout Scripture. One of them was just in creation itself. In creation itself that, that he made and created man and said, hey, this is for you, here's paradise. Right? When you go back and you look at creation, all of creation was designed and geared to meet man's needs. Right? You go back to the garden, food was just there. Animals were just there. The, the environment was just, everything was perfect. It was geared and created towards man's needs to bless man so that man and God could just walk in fellowship and man didn't have to worry about anything but just, just God, just fellowship with him and unity and with him and worship and all that took place there. But, but that was that way until man sinned. When man sinned, this, this perfect world that was perfectly created to meet our needs and as, as an expression of love from our Father, all of creation was corrupted. The Bible tells us that when man sinned, death entered the world, right? Things started to die and to decay. Of course, as a part of the fall, it was like, all right, dude, you're gonna have to work the land now. You're gonna have to earn a living, you know? I mean, you're gonna have to, you're gonna have to sweat of your brow. It's no longer just gonna be like, hey, just enjoy, just partake of what I've given you. You're gonna to have to work the land to, to eat and to survive. To the woman, he's like, childbirth, it's gonna be painful. And, 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 and all of this entered in because man sinned. Now, we do know in the story of Genesis there, as, as man went and hid from God, God said, where are you? Man said, she did it. She was like, serpent lied to me, I was deceived. It tells us that God then slaughtered an animal, blood was shed, and he used the skins of the animal to clothe their nakedness, to, to, to cover their sin, in, in an attempt to allow fellowship to be restored in a way, but it was an imperfect restoration of that fellowship all the way up until the time when Jesus came. And then the perfect sacrifice was given once for all. But initially, we see that God expresses love to mankind, and here's this perfect creation I made for you. We see how God revealed his love in the way he dealt with the nation of Israel. You know, in Deuteronomy chapter seven, verses seven and eight, it says, the Lord had his heart set on you and chose you, not because you were more numerous than all the peoples, 
for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors, he brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the place of slavery from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And you go through the whole Old Testament, you see God just expressing his love over and over to his people Israel. But I think the greatest expression of God's love was the death of his son. The death of his son, right? In Romans 5.8 it says, but God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's one of my favorite verses. Because when he says, in that why we were still sinners, that word sinners there carries a couple connotations that really hit my heart. The first connotation is the word sinners kind of focuses on being an, an outsider. The idea of being outside the family, right? How many of you have ever felt that way, right? It happens when we have social groups and unfortunately cliques and stuff. You know, you walk up, hey everybody, and they're kind of like, oh, uh, hey. And you instantly feel like, I don't feel like I belong here. Right, when we were outside the family of God. But that word also carries the connotation of being God's enemy. Like while we were in the opposing army against him, he died for us. What kind of love is that? What kind of love is that? It's a love that's, that's, that's beyond, right? And so John says here in 1 John 4, he goes, God's love was revealed. That word revealed simply means to be made public. It's the opposite of, of you know, being hidden. So God's love was, was made public by doing what? Sending Jesus. That's how God's love was made public. Now when it says he sent Jesus, that word sent means to dispatch. To dispatch, incidentally, that means that, that Jesus wasn't created here. He wasn't just a man born as a man. He was dispatched from somewhere else. He preexisted creation pre-existed his time in coming here and being clothed in the flesh. And that's exactly what John said in the beginning of this letter, right? Jesus, who was from the beginning. In John chapter one, he says this Jesus who, who was with God, who was God, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was sent to this earth, born as a human, lived as one of us. Ultimately, so that we can relate to and understand God in a way that was lost since the garden. And yes, he had to then do the work to restore the fellowship by being the sacrifice and dying on the cross and all of that. But in the old covenant, you read through the old covenant, God was largely hidden by ritual and ceremony, right? In the tabernacle and in the temple, you had the big veil. God was hidden behind that veil and only one person once a year can go see God go into his presence. But, but through all the ritual and ceremony, it was in reference to God, but God was largely hidden from his people. But in 1 John 1, 2, John tells us that that life that was hidden was revealed. That life was revealed, and it's in Jesus. Jesus is that life that was revealed to us, so much so that in John 14, 9, Jesus said, the one who has seen me has seen the Father. We see Jesus. We see God in a way that our limited human brains can comprehend. We see his heart. We see his character. We see God's love expressed through Jesus. So God, who is love, revealed his love to us, showed us what real love is by sending Jesus. That's the demonstration. The Son of God came to this earth to live and to die as a man in our place while we were his enemies, while we were outside the family, while we were the ones shaking the fist at God and saying, I hate you and I don't believe in you and you're nothing. And God still looked at, at us in that state and said, I love you so much. Let me die for you. I will die and pay the price for your sin. The purpose and the goal of revealing his love, the purpose of revealing himself as the son of God to the world, well, in verse nine and 10, John tells us there. It said that Jesus was sent that we might live through him. That's in verse nine. And then verse 10, it says that Jesus would be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Back in chapter three, verse five, John said that Jesus was revealed to take away our sins. 
And then in chapter three, verse eight, it says the son of God was revealed to destroy the devil's works. So there's four things that John is, has given us in these chapters here, specifically of, of what God did by sending his son, how his love was revealed through sending his son to destroy the devil's works, to take away our sins, to be our atoning sacrifice that we might live through him. You put that all together and you go, where did all that take place? At the cross. That all took place at the cross where he was crucified for us. God manifested his love at the cross when he gave his one and only son as the atoning sacrifice for us. Really, Jesus did what was best for us, even when it meant the worst for him. That's love. That's love. That's a love that is supernatural. And none of what Jesus did was prompted by man's love for him. Not at all. It was prompted by God's love for us. How beautiful is that? Now, follow the thought in reverse. God loved us so much. That, that he sent Jesus. And so Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, right? Everything that, that stood against God, everything that stood against God's will, everything that was built up to separate man from God, all of that, everything that bound his creation, namely his great love, mankind, we are the apple of his eye, the Bible tells us, that everything that bound us in the bondage of sin everything that, that, that got us wrapped up into the place where we simply had a dead spirit unable to even obey God, unable to even do his will, Jesus came to destroy those works. But he didn't just come to destroy the works of the devil, he also came, it says, to take away our sin, right? Hey, Nathan, this isn't yours anymore. I'm gonna take this away. What do we do? <laughs> but God, I like doing that and take it away. This isn't who you are anymore. You're my child now, I've given you a new nature. Look, your old nature still wants that, but I'm gonna take this away, I'm gonna take this sin away from you. It doesn't belong to you anymore. But we had still done the sin. We had still done the sin and because God is just, God is justice, right? Justice had to have been served, so he died our death penalty for breaking his law. He became our atoning sacrifice, the word says there. Other translations, if you have like a New King James, it says propitiation. I personally like the way the CSB renders it because most people, hey, what's propitiation mean? Nobody knows. That's a word that's not a common use in our language anymore, but what it means is atoning sacrifice. It means a sacrifice made to appease the wrath or to appease the judgment due for wrongdoing. We didn't do it, nor could we do anything to appease God's wrath for our sin. There was nothing we could do to placate God's anger against sin. But he could, and he did. And he made it possible for us to be forgiven. He made it possible for us to be declared not guilty. So, he destroys the works of the devil, the things that are building separation between us and God. Then he comes to us and he takes away our sin. And then he dies on the cross, pays the price, appeases the wrath of God against sin on our behalf, and then what? We are then able to live through him. You see, God didn't just come to us and go, wow, you're messed up. Let me take away your sin. Well, I'm just gonna do more sin. <laughs> Right? That's, that's kind of what we see through the Old Testament, right? That's why there was a yearly sacrifice. All right, God, I messed up. Kill the bull. Sprinkle the blood. Woohoo! All right, I'll see you next year. Why? Because the nature wasn't changed. The heart wasn't changed. But because of Jesus, our nature is different. Our heart is different and we're able to live through him. So he didn't just take away the sin, but then he gave us a new nature. He didn't just take away the sin and pay the price for us, he gave us the ability to say, God, I'm gonna obey you. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, I can obey you, Lord. When he says we might live there, that word live incidentally means to become alive in a transcendent manner, beyond physical human experience. Made alive, born again, eternally alive, 
It's this idea that our dead spirit was made alive by the power of God and then we're gonna be able to live with him forever. Beautiful, beautiful. And then born again, being born again simply means this, according to Ephesians 1.13. It says, in him you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit when you believed. Great. And then back to Romans 5.5. 5. So then God's love is then poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Right? You see the connection here? God does a work. We, through faith, receive that work, what Jesus did for us. Then God seals with us the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit, he pours out his love into us. It's a supernatural love. And then that love then flows out through us to one another and to the world. We don't know love or define love by our love for him because our love is simply imperfect. Human love is typically motivated by what I get out of it, how you make me feel, right? I love you. Get in a fight. I don't love you anymore. Well, what? That's not love. That's something else. That's I like you a, a lot. No, I don't like you anymore. But love is unconditional. Love is without condition. I love you, and it doesn't matter what you do. Not only that, I'm gonna love you no matter what you do, even when it hurts me and it makes things worse for me or harder for me or bad for me. And we really can only do that through the Spirit of God in our lives. We know love. Love is defined by his love for us. Ours is simply a response to that. So in verse 11, he says, dear friends, if God loved us this way, guess what? We must also love one another. Here we are again for the second time in these verses being exhorted to love one another. But I want everybody to note something, okay? Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we must, we also must love one another. It's a command. It's an emphatic command. It's not optional. It's non-negotiable, right? It's not a suggestion. It's not like, well, when they're making you feel good, you yeah, love them. When they've hurt you or offended you or done something that made you mad, hate them all you want. That's not the idea here. It's a command. We also must love one another. And it's a command because it comes out of the very nature of God. It's born out of the very nature of who he is. God is love. We know God, therefore, we should love one another. And this really gets to the third foundational fact about God that answers why. <laughs> why this big call? Why this command to love one another? Because he is love. Because of what he did, his ultimate demonstration for us proved what love looks like, and, and we've received that, and through receiving that, we've received his nature. The third fact is that he's doing something in and through us. This is why we're called to love one another. You see, God, I don't think, is satisfied with simply telling us that he loves us. I don't think God is simply satisfied in even just showing us that he loves us. Those two things are great, but his desire is to live in us. His desire is to, to be living life with us every single moment of every single day. His desire is to help us love as he loves. So he tells us he loves us, he shows us he loves us, and then he goes, and I know you can't do it, so I'm going to come dwell within you to help you do it, to help you love the way I love. Why? I think ultimately it's so that the world may see him and come to know him. Look at verse 12. He says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us, and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we remain in him, and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. So it starts there, verse 12, with a, with a phrase that, that a lot of people struggle with. No one has ever seen God. Right? What, is, what does that mean? Well, if you, if you go back through the Bible and you look at God's dwelling places, right? It's kind of an interesting study, interesting thing to look at. You, know, you go all the way back to the beginning. In the beginning, man had unbroken fellowship with God. Unbroken fellowship. Man dwelt with God in a very personal and very direct way in the garden, right? You go back to Genesis 3, you could read all about that. But then sin broke that fellowship as we talked about. God had to shed the blood of animals to cover those sins so that this, this imperfect fellowship can be restored. 
And so there was, a, there was an imperfect fellowship that was then restored, but then there was still this process of, yeah, but your nature is, is not different, so you still have to come back and do the sacrifices every year. So then you, you, you go through Genesis, however, and then you get to Exodus, and you see that God didn't, um, uh, well, after the garden, we see that God walked with men. That was his, his kind of dwelling place. Throughout Genesis, we see people like Enoch and Noah and Abraham. It says they walked with God, right? And you're like, oh, that harkens back to the garden. But then by the time we get to Exodus, you see that God didn't simply walk with men. He now dwelt with them, right? Exodus 25, 8, it says, they are to make a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them. So God walked with them in the garden. Sin entered. Fellowship was broken. Fellowship was restored imperfectly. Throughout Genesis, God still walked with certain men, right? And then Exodus, he's like, look, build a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among you. Now, the first of those sanctuaries was the tabernacle, the tabernacle, and the Bible tells us that when Moses dedicated the tabernacle, the glory of God came down. He moved into the tent, right? God now dwelt, lived among men. And so he dwelled in the camp, lived among them, but he didn't dwell within the individual Israelites. Eventually, Israel sinned. God's glory departed. You read that in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Then you go on in the story, and God uses Samuel and David to restore the nation, Eventually, Solomon builds this magnificent temple for God, and then it tells us in 1 Kings 8 that when, God, when the temple was dedicated, God's glory came back down, and once again, he dwelt among his people. But as it happens, history repeated itself. The nation disobeyed God. They were taken into captivity. The temple was destroyed, and then Ezekiel the prophet says that he saw the glory of God depart from the temple. And we're like, man, we're just terrible at building a place for God to reside, aren't we? <laughs> and you go, did the glory of God ever return to earth? Yeah, it did, in the person of Jesus Christ. In the person of Jesus Christ. John chapter 1, verse 14, says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we observed his glory. That word dwelt there means tabernacled. He came and tabernacled among us. Great, the glory of God's back on earth, right? The glory of God was now dwelling on earth in the body of Jesus Christ. John chapter two, verses 18 through 22, Jesus is basically saying, Jesus is like, my body is the temple of God, right? Destroy this temple, I'll raise it in three days. You're like, okay. But wicked mankind said, hey, we're gonna destroy that temple too. Nail it to the cross. Brutalize him. In 1 Corinthians 2, 8, it says it was the Lord of glory that was crucified. But all of this was just part of God's ultimate plan of love, to permanently restore unbroken fellowship with his creation. Because although man destroyed that building, that temple as well, Jesus rose from the dead, returned to heaven, and then he sent his Holy Spirit to dwell within men. The glory of God now today lives, dwells, tabernacles within the bodies of God's children. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Paul says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And although the glory of God departed from the tabernacle and the temple when Israel disobeyed God, according to John 14, 16, it says this, the Spirit will remain in us forever. God won't leave his kids. The glory of God dwells within his kids and it will not depart. With this background, I think we can understand what John means when he says no one has ever seen God. I believe what John's getting at here is, is well, God in his essence, according to 1 Timothy 1.17, it says God is invisible, right? God in his essence, his core nature, he's invisible. No one has seen him. But according to Colossians 1.15, it says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And so we're able to see God in that sense, relate to him in a way um, differently than, than, than him being this, this invisible uh, spirit, is, is Jesus came. By taking a human body, Jesus, the second person in the Godhead, was, was able to reveal God to us. But after his death, after his resurrection, Jesus isn't here on earth anymore, is he? He ascended. He's at the right hand of the Father. So then how today, how does God reveal himself to the world? How does he do it today? In the garden, God was there walking with man. 
Throughout Genesis, he walked with select people. Throughout Exodus and on, he said, look, build me a house. Built a tabernacle. The glory of God dwelt there. People said, there's God. Then the glory left. Then later on, they built a magnificent temple. The glory came again. There's God. They disobeyed. The glory left. The temple was destroyed. Jesus came to this earth. There's God. But he was crucified, buried, rose again. So where's God today? How does the world who can't see an invisible God see God today? Through the lives of his children. Through the lives of his children in whom the glory of God dwells. It's our lives that express to the world a God who loves them. It is through our lives. Men cannot see God, but they can see us. They can see us. And when we love one another with this otherworldly, supernatural, given of God, born of God, godly love that makes no sense to the world, it's proof that one God lives in us. But because that love is only made possible through the power of the Holy Spirit, it's a witness that they can be God's kids as well. It's a witness to them that God wants to love them too because, oh, he loved me? I can't tell you how many times people I went to high school with go, what do you do now? (laughs) Glory to God, that's a miracle. (laughs) And people see your lives changed by the supernatural love of God. They go, "What what is going on? What is happening? That's impossible. How can you treat someone that way after they did this to you? That, that just doesn't make sense to us. And the answer is absolutely it doesn't make sense because it's from God. It's from God. The life of a believer who remains in God's love is a powerful witness, powerful witness for God in the world. Men may not be able to see God, but they can see his love moving us to deeds of unselfish, sacrificial, charitable, loyal, kind love. The kind of love that God has for us. And I believe that the world will continue to struggle to believe that God loves sinners. They will continue to struggle with that message until they see his love at work in and through sinners whom he has saved. And that's our call. Why are we called to love one another? Because God is love. Because we've been given his nature through the death of his son on the cross and our faith in that. And we're called to love one another because God is doing a work through that love, revealing himself to a lost and dying world. Jesus didn't simply preach the love of God, he proved it by giving his life on the cross. We, his followers, were to follow his example. And John says, if we remain in him, if we abide in him, if we stay in that close fellowship, if we stop hiding in the bushes like Adam and Eve did, but instead we say, God, here I am, and I want to be close to you, and I want to stay close to you, and I just want to live in your love. He says that we will remain, as we remain in him, we will remain in his love. And this leads us to loving God more and more. Incidentally, also leads to us loving one another more and more and leads to us loving the lost world, loving our enemies more and more. And so if we remain in his love, we will share that love with others, as he said earlier, in action and in truth. We will demonstrate that love for others through sacrificial service, through, through charitable service, through kindness, through affection and care and concern for the lost and the hurting. And when we do that, we experience more of the Father's love in our own lives ourselves, and we come to understand his love more and more. So God is love, then is, it's, it's not just some deep biblical statement. That phrase, God is love, is the very foundation of a believer's relationship with God. It's the very foundation of our relationship with fellow man. And like I said, why then are we to love one another? Because he is love. Because he is love, we bear his nature. 
because we have been sealed and empowered by the Holy Spirit of promise, we can love. We declare, we prove, we demonstrate that we are his kids when we do love the way he enables us to love. We love one another because he first loved us as demonstrated on the cross at Calvary. And we love one another because through it, God reveals himself to a lost and a dying world. And so I'm just gonna read the last two verses here. And we have seen and we testify that the Father has sent his Son as the world's Savior. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in him and he in God. And we have come to know and to believe that the love, to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And the one who remains in love remains in God and God remains in him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for who you are. You are love. God, I think it would take infinite lifetimes to fully understand the depths of what that means. But Lord, you knew and you know what we need. And so you gave us the greatest demonstration of your love on the cross. Where you came to those who were still your enemies those still blaspheming your name, those still denying your existence, hating you and the concept of you, those who are outside of your family, estranged from you with broken fellowship as your creation. And you looked upon that, you looked upon us with a love that we can't even fully understand. And you came to destroy the works of the devil. You came to take away our sin. You died to pay the penalty for our sin, that we may have life. And so God, we wanna live that life to your glory. We don't wanna live that life to the fullest. We wanna be people who in this world, while we live and work and go to school and whatever we do, God, when people see us, they would see the glory of God they would see the pure, holy, righteous, morally perfect love of a supernatural being called God, their creator. That they would come to know this love that surpasses all understanding, that goes beyond our ability to, 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 to fully execute ourselves, Lord, but when we put our faith in you and come to know you and experience that love ourselves, God, you are the one who enables us through the power of your Holy Spirit, to love others that way. And so God, if we've been dropping the ball on that, Lord, we repent. If we've been infighting and backbiting and gossiping and slandering, specifically within the family of God to our own brothers and sisters, Lord, we repent. Forgive us of these things, Lord. We don't want the world to look at the church and see the world. We want them to look at the church and see you. And help us, God. Help us, because we need it. We mess it up every time on our own, Lord. And so we ask, Lord, we submit ourselves to you. We yield to your power and your, your move in our lives, God, to do what we can't do on our own. To love one another. Supernaturally. And that that love would then flow into the world as we would love those around us who don't know you. Supernaturally. That they would come to know that love themselves. We thank you. We do love you, Lord. And we praise your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's worship, guys.